0: We come this morning in our exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews, to chapter 9. We'll be considering with the Lord's help, verses 11 to 14. Our text is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14. We've just read the chapter. Let me point out verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. I want you to put yourself in the place of an Old Testament Jew uh, living at the time of Moses. And you're hearing for the first time all that God has said. Moses has come down from the mountain. He's come with the very word of God in his mouth. It is, in every sense, a word from heaven to them. And so they sit and stand and listen as Moses conveys to them all of the details of the Old Testament law and the ceremonies and system that he had appointed for them to observe in all of those years and centuries uh, that would, would follow. And if you're placing yourself in their shoes and you're thinking and seeing and hearing, as it were, through their own experience, what is unfolding, There's a few things that emerge, and one of them is the connection between the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. The connection between these two. What do I mean by that? Well, in in Exodus 29, uh, we hear, and they heard, uh, a promise. God gave a promise that he, Jehovah, would dwell in the midst of his people. And so there they have it. They lay hold of this promise. They take it uh, to themselves. They've heard from God Him himself. But you come to the end of the book of Exodus, right? That's what I've just quoted as in Exodus 29. You come to chapter 40. You're at the end of Exodus 40, and it ends with this depiction of God's glory uh, filling the tabernacle. And yet there is no access to the people Given, So look at Exodus 40, verse 34, very end of the book. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so the book's ending with the glory filling the tabernacle, and yet this loud message of no access to the people. If Moses is barred, then in your mind, in your mind, and theirs, everyone is barred from coming into the immediate presence of God. And so you're left at the end of Exodus with this sense of of growing tension, right? It's 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 bottled up, and you can almost feel it. The Lord's come; His glory's filled it, and yet. We're cut off from it. And right on the heels of that, you flip over a page to Leviticus chapter 1. And what happens in the opening of Leviticus 1 is the Lord relieves that tension by providing his solution. And in Leviticus chapter 1 to 10, you have all of this ornate description of Moses speaking to them about the sacrifices, one type of sacrifice after another, and the appointment of the priesthood, and what they would be adorned with, and their service, and so on and so forth. And so for those 10 chapters, you're given all of this depiction of sacrifice and atonement and uh, forgiveness and priestly ministry and so on. And those 10 chapters really climax, in chapter 9, verse 22. And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering of the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation, and came out, and blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people, right? The message is loud and clear. All of these sacrifices, all of these depictions of God's provision of atonement and of forgiveness and of salvation, they've all been set before them. And in that is secured for the people access into the tabernacle, into the place of of God's presence, and so we come back to the book of Hebrews, and we've been bombarded, really, with a whole string of different questions as we've been working our way through the recent chapters of this epistle. Who is the high priest of the new covenant? Why? And, and what is he like? And so on and so forth. Where is the tabernacle that, that he is going to carry out his priestly ministry in? And what's the nature of that tabernacle? What services exactly does he carry out? What, what does he render and do on be- behalf of his people? And in answer to all of this, how does he, that is Christ and his work, how, in what way does it far surpass and excel that which was Levitical? that which was connected to the Old Testament ceremony. So we have all these questions, right, that are bombarding us. And the Lord's coming to us in his word, and he's answering them one by one by one, breaking them open, fleshing out the details, and in doing so, feeding the faith of God's people and reinforcing in our hearts and minds uh, the glory of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to Hebrews 9 and this morning to verse 11, we're really, we're really at one of those hinges again, if a micro hinge, perhaps. We're entering into a new section that runs from uh, chapter nine, verse eleven, through chapter ten, verse twenty-two, and the focus over the section that unfolds here is really now on the sacrifices. Now we're riveting our gaze on these Old Testament sacrifices and their sig- significance. In other words. We're talking, as I noted last week, about the work of Christ our High Priest, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as our High Priest, all that is fulfilled in him, what service Christ rendered. And you'll note in verse 12, the title of our sermon is Eternal Redemption, lifted from these words, the service that he rendered is that he has obtained eternal redemption for his people. And so he's done that in three ways. We're going to note three things this morning in looking at verses 11 to 14. First of all, his office. First of all, his office. Uh, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. We've already heard so much About the Lord Jesus Christ as a high priest. We've heard a lot about how he's of a different order after the order of Melchizedek and how he therefore is of a different kind and higher than Aaron. And yet we've also seen how he's connected to the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood as well and how he fulfills that. And we've heard so much about him being a high priest. Why is it that we're hearing so much about this? Well, if you're reading through the four Gospels reflectively, you're picking up on clues and cues that, that, that surface in your reading of the, the Gospels, it becomes very clear when you're, you're looking and thinking, what were the Jews, what were they like, you know, what were they thinking, what were they doing, and so on and so forth. It becomes clear that the Jews at that time had focused all of their expectations on the Messiah being a prophet and a king, and so we hear at various times they'll speak about the prophets to come and the Old Testament prophets. But you know, are you that prophet that has been promised? And so on. That sort of thing comes out. That's easy. It sits on the surface. We also see references to their interest in the Messiah as king and all the ways in which they depict that he's going to come and he's going to obliterate Rome and he's going to restore the glory of Israel and the kingship of the heirs of David and so on, a great interest and focus upon him, both as prophet and as king. What's absent in our reading through these gospels is any indication whatsoever of their thinking of the Messiah as being a priest. That appears to be absent, thinking of him as a priest. And that is one of the reasons that it is so prominent in the book, the book of what children? The book to whom? To the Hebrews, right? To Jewish Christians. It's one of the reasons that the priestly office of Jesus Christ is so prominent in this inspired book that God has given to us. And so here we are in verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest. You'll tie this to the verse that precedes it. He's speaking about all the different ceremonies in verse 10, and he says, imposed on them until the time of reformation, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. So there's a there's a contrast that's being drawn here, right? All of that was in play until the times of Reformation. Now those times have come because Christ himself has come. And in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, these things are going to be put away. Or you think in verse 9 of how it's describing these ordinances, and it says, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to to the conscience, but Christ could. And so, but Christ being come and high priest, as we'll see more in a moment, we have the purging of our conscience from dead works to serve the living God in verse 14. So you can appreciate now the flow of thought, how these things are being uh, brought together. Christ being come, you go back to Psalm 40 and You're singing through this. This is exactly what's being anticipated here in verse 7. It's Christ speaking in Psalm 40. When he says in verse 7, Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. Well, now he has come. But Christ being come and high priest. The Old Testament Jew, again, you know, the the believing Jew, the the godly Old Testament Jew in the Old Testament church, you know, they would have, their imagination would have been set on fire as they listened to the laws, they listened to the prophets, as they sang the Psalms, as they watched the ordinances of public worship, as they participated in all of these ceremonies, their imaginations would have been lit up. And they would have been thinking as they're peering through the shadows knowingly to all that God is revealing about who the Messiah would be and all that he would do. And you can imagine if it was yourself, how restricted to what you have in the Old Testament, what kind of shape that would have taken in your mind. Who is he? What does he do? What do we expect from him? But in Jesus Christ's coming, he not only matched even the most astute and exercised and gifted Old Testament saint, he not only matched, but he far surpasses everything they anticipated. He outstrips all of the expectations. So we have Christ coming, being come and high priest of good things to come. You think to yourself, well, when when exactly is this referring to Christ being come and high priest? What, what's the time referent here? What is it? Well, you know that he was appointed. He was appointed as the mediator, including his priestly work. He was appointed as the mediator in the eternal council of the Trinity. So before time itself, he is appointed as the mediator. But then in history... We see it unfolding at the moment of his incarnation, in his conception within the womb of the Virgin Mary. How do we know? Because the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Right? It unfolds in history, in Christ's Christ's incarnation. And then formally, he is consecrated at his baptism where he is anointed with the the Holy Spirit. And so he's being come and high priest of good things to come. He does that in order that he might offer himself as a sacrifice. He had to be a high priest first. That had to come first. First he is appointed as a high priest. Then he is able to offer himself as a sacrifice. And it is a priest of good things, we're told, to come. And good things indeed, you know, all that we've been hearing in previous chapter and in this chapter is, this is the era of the new covenant. This is the dawning of the great light which has been promised. This is the era of good things. And the good things to come are the good things that are now enjoyed right this moment, by the believing people of God. All of those good things are flung wide open to them so that we can take every bit of it in and spend all life long savoring and enjoying and digging and, 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 and finding all of the good things that he has provided for us. But it's not restricted to that, though, is it? As we saw in chapter 8, the good things to come include also those things for which we still wait. The things that we are awaiting, the good things that are yet to follow in what is to come. You have on one side, the Lord promising to his people, grace and glory, both of those things. You know that grace is in seed and glory is in blossom, if you will. They're of the same thing. But we have both grace now and glory that is to come. And that is held in contrast to what the Bible calls, calls the wrath to come. Right? There is wrath to come for the unconverted. There is glory to come for the Lord's people. And so there's a whole nother vast unimaginable arena of these good things that are yet in root, that are still on the way. Things that we are anticipating ourselves. But they're glad tidings that have arrived in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you see it from the beginning because the glad tidings are publicly announced there on the plains around Bethlehem. You have the heavens cracked open and the clouds peeled back and the angelic host raising their thunderous shouts of praise about the appearance of the incarnate word, the God-man on earth born in the city of of Bethlehem. This is the good things that were to come and have come and some of which are yet to come. And so to be told that the Lord Jesus Christ is a high priest is good news. To be told that he is a high priest rather than another, that he is the high priest alone, that he is the high priest forever, that he is the high priest of all of his people is not only good news, it is the very best news. It's the best news that could ever be heard. For those of you who are unconverted here this morning, you recognize the order in which God's message comes to us. Law, then gospel. Right? Sin, then grace. The Lord brings to you first the bad news. The first thing that comes to you as an unconverted person is the bad news. And there's no way to do an end run around that. No way to curtail that. Certainly no faithful way of undermining or ignoring that. There is bad news indeed. You were were born dead on arrival. Dead in your trespasses and sin under the wrath of God. You are alienated from God. You've You've been separated from God by your own sins. That you are totally depraved, not just partially depraved. That you are not just sick, but dead. That all of your faculties, your body and your soul, is all used in disobedience to the Lord and unable to please Him whatsoever. You've taken God's law, which is holy and beautiful and perfect and just, and you've broken it and trampled it underfoot and spent your life transgressing it. And all of that comes with a cost. All of that comes with the price tag. The Lord will not be mocked. What we sow, we shall also reap. And the Lord says, those who break the law have to pay the penalty of the law. And the punishment for the violation of God's law is eternal damnation. That is just, that is equitable, that is fair, that is right. That's the verdict that hangs over us in the bad news and more. But it is on the heels of that that then comes the best news ever. Better than than what many would commend as as good news. Because the Lord comes and declares to us the answer. He declares to us the remedy. He declares the provision which he as the sovereign God and sovereign grace has undertaken for hell-deserving sinners. And he sets forth the person of his son. And among a whole host of other things, he says, here is the high priest of good things to come. Here he is. This is the one who alone is able to make sacrifice in order to reconcile you unto God. In, making, in offering the sacrifice of himself as a substitute in the place of his believing people. And his work of redemption is able to save every soul that comes to him sincerely by faith to the uttermost. It's good news indeed. Indeed. Good things to come, but then, so we have his office, but then moving from his office, what is his place of service? And that brings us secondly to his tabernacle, which we've already seen references to as well, but picking up in verse 11, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Here we have a greater and more perfect and complete tabernacle than the tent that was erected in the days of Moses. You recognize that when you're reading your New Testament scriptures, the the Old Testament imagery of tabernacle, tabernacle, And the temple, which replaced the tabernacle, it has, it's a pointer to to multiple things, right? So it's, in the first instance, that tabernacle was a pointer to what is fulfilled in Christ's body. And so we read in the very opening words of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that the word came and tabernacled among us, right? So here is Christ And he is a picture of the tabernacle, God present in the midst of his people. This comes out later in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, uh, but a body hast thou prepared me. And then it goes on to speak about the rending of the veil. That is his flesh, right? Jesus, we're told in Colossians 1, in him dwelleth all all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so Christ is depicted in the tabernacle. But we see other things as well, and I'll hasten on here. But the the tabernacle is also a picture of the church. And we see that in the New Testament, that the Lord is, is giving to us a picture of him coming and dwelling in the midst of his people. It's also a picture of the believer. And so we have in both Epistles to the Colossians and elsewhere, this language of of the believer being the temple of the living God. The believer himself or herself is the temple in which God dwells by the Holy Spirit. And so there's something there. But then there's fourthly this picture of heaven the picture of heaven, that the tabernacle is designed, right? There is the true, as this passage says, or the real, the, the original. In heaven. And then the Lord takes that and he creates a figure, a pattern in the tabernacle to depict something of those heavenly realities in the Old Testament scriptures. And it's that last picture that we've been noting in Hebrews is especially underlying the tabernacle pointing uh, to heaven. We've seen that already, but how, how is it greater? Like he gives us two negations uh, he says that it is greater and more perfect, not made with hands, that is to of this building. And then secondly, neither by the blood of, of, of goats and calves. So it's, it's not. It's greater and more perfect because this tabernacle, this heavenly tabernacle, is not made with hands. The Old T- Testament tabernacle and the temple, though given in a very detailed way by divine prescription were nevertheless erected by human hands. You think of Solomon's temple, which surpasses all the other structures in glory, and yet Solomon's facing this reality. When you come to 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 27, uh, we read, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded, right? So there's, you take something that's high, lofty, glorious, and so on. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 this is a more, this is a greater and more perfect tabernacle. This is one that is made not with hands, erected by God himself in the heavens, not of this building, this creaturely, worldly, earthly uh, building, and neither by the blood of bulls and of goats not through these signs and ceremonies of the shedding of of the blood of animals, but by something that is far more excellent, as the passage says, but by his own blood, Christ's own blood, he entered in once into the holy place and obtained eternal salvation for us. It's his blood that brought him into heaven, and the effect is that that blood brings his people into heaven. Into an eternal redemption. Into heaven. Into this holy place. Chapter 9 verse 24. To see this reinforced what I'm telling you. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Which are the figures of the true. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, we've been speaking about uh, references to the ascension, and that's uh, an important point that's undermined under underlined in these in these um, sections that we've been considering here. I wouldn't necessarily limit it to that, merely to the moment of of ascension. Why do I say that? Because when the Lord Jesus Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice, when He shed His blood. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, when the priest, the, the priest entered into the veil immediately after the victim's death, after the blood was shed, right? And then the body is burned outside the camp, which we'll come to in, in chapter 13, uh, verse 11, uh, where it speaks about uh, Christ, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest, are burned without the camp. And then it goes on to speak of Jesus, that he suffered without the gate in the shedding of his own blood. You know that he was, the, the cross was outside Jerusalem. It was on Golgotha, on the hill of, of Calvary, and, and so on. And so there's this sense of immediacy, death of the sacrifice, blood brought into the sanctuary, the parallels that we're seeing elsewhere in Hebrews. Jesus pours out his blood on the cross. In doing so, he expiates sin. At that moment, the veil in the temple is rent in twain, as we saw last week. And Jesus cries out, It is finished. And so there's this vivid picture. At that moment, there is entrance into the presence of God. The veil is rent, the blood shed, the veil's rent, and Jesus says, It is finished, and he expires, and his soul enters into heaven at that moment. His soul enters into heaven. His body is going to be laid in the grave. So that when we come to the resurrection three days later on the third day, the resurrection testifies to the fact that the sacrifice had been accepted when it was offered. Not that it's now accepted at the resurrection, but the resurrection is a testimony that it had been accepted at the cross. And you think again of the, some of the parallels here. Aaron, Aaron returns from the holy of holies, right? That imagery of, of what's unfolding there, and so on. And so the atonement is presented when Aaron sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. The people are outside praying. They're in suspense, at times no doubt fearful, you know, is, is, is this going to be acceptable? Uh, you know, uh, is God going to be appeased through this sacrifice and so on? But that sort of thing's not true of the disciples' experience after the resurrection. Interesting. You know, prior to the, the, the ascension. So there's different angles here at which we can come at this. And it's helpful for us, I think, to pull on these threads in our meditations and so on. But by blood, we're told here, he entered into the holy place, into this heavenly sanctuary. His satisfaction is honored by God. His satisfaction magnifies God's law. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ as the substitute for his people magnifies the law. We can say in one sense, magnifies the law more than the eternal damnation. Of all of the reprobate for all of eternity in hell. And there are many ways in which that is true, magnifying all that the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for himself and obtaining salvation. You think of the value of this blood that's being described by his own blood. It's it's his own blood. It's not the blood of another, it's not a bull, a calf, a goat, and so on. It's not even another person. The value is in the fact that it's his own blood, the blood of the Son, the blood of God incarnate, as Acts 20, verse 28 tells us. What is described elsewhere in the New Testament as precious blood. Why? Because there is no greater price than the blood of the Son of God. There is no greater price that is conceivable Or that could have ever been offered. This is the highest of highest of highest of price in order to secure the salvation of God's people. And if we can get our heads and hearts as high as we possibly can, as we should in our estimate of the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, and as we ascend in our meditations to grab a hold of these things you immediately are faced with the reality of how incredibly vile how reprehensible sin must be how repugnant it must be if it cost so costly a sacrifice as this sin is no trifle sin is no little thing Sin is not an excusable thing. Sin is not a weakness, not a blemish, not just an oversight. Sin is absolutely abominable. The least sin, the least sin is worthy of eternal damnation. The the least sin would have cost Christ his blood. Let that sink down into your souls. The value of his blood in contrast to how absolutely vile our sins must be all of this in order as the passage says to obtain eternal redemption all to obtain eternal redemption to deliver his people from bondage by a ransom price right this is the whole idea of redemption is the idea of to be bought back you can't understand redemption without the concept of slavery you can't, you can't understand it without the concept of bondage, which is so central to the biblical, uh, to, to the Holy Scriptures. It's deliverance from that bondage by being bought with a ransom price. All of its parts we could break down, we do that on other occasions and other texts. Here, the emphasis is that it's eternal, it's an eternal redemption. That is to say, it can never, ever lose its efficacy. It's permanent. It's final. It is perfect. The believer can never ever be brought again under the dominion of sin. Think of that. We still have the presence of sin that we're struggling with. But we've been delivered from the guilt of sin, yes. But also delivered from the, from the dominion of sin and it is it is it is impossible by definition for the believer to ever be brought back under that dominion slavery to satan the domination of sin can't happen because the lord has secured an eternal redemption for his people it's a redemption that can never be repeated it's never able to lose its power it is perfect it is complete it is forever this this enables the believer to find their feet, doesn't it? We find our stability in Him. In saying that, I mean we find our stability in Him alone, in Him only. We don't find our stability in us. We got to pull ourselves together. We gotta, we gotta bucket up. We gotta like sort stuff out. We gotta. Have, you know, willpower, we've got to chart our course and so on and so forth. We don't find our stability in our circumstances which are always fluctuating. If we can kind of navigate and get to this spot or get into this situation or if this thing were relieved, and if I could get this uh, answer to this question or this burden removed from me and so on and so forth, our stability is not in our circumstances. And yet that's the inclination, isn't it? To try to build our securities in the world below to try to build them in getting the right relationship in the right way operating like it should in marriage in parenthood in friendship at the workplace getting the right you know circumstances in our callings getting our health sorted out getting this that the other multiply them We're trying to build our securities in this world here's where our security is found for the believer Christ having obtained an eternal redemption for us. This is rock solid, immovable, untoppable. This is something you can hang everything on. This is something you can build your entire life upon for time and eternity. Thirdly, we have his ministry, his office, his tabernacle. Thirdly, his ministry, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here we have a superior sacrifice. His ministry is in providing a superior sacrifice. On one hand, as you see in verse 13, there is is, uh, sacrifices which legally and ceremonially... Purify and make clean. And so they were there as appointed rituals in order to establish patterns. And they secured that ceremonial cleanliness. They did that. That's one thing. The other thing they did is, more importantly, point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that they had a springboard that was pointing them to to the ultimate provision that God would make. But here we have something superior. It's not with the blood of animals that, that... are just animals and the ashes of the heifer and so on that ashes of the heifer is a reference to what we saw in numbers nineteen which we read for our old testament reading you'll note there those who were unclean there was this ritual the red heifer and the cedars thrown into the fire and the ashes are gathered and they're kept and mixed with water and people are sprinkled and you'll 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 note in that context of of, of numbers nineteen you become unclean for a Innumerable reasons, your sin and all sorts of other things. You become unclean for inescapable things as well. You know, someone's got to touch that dead body if we're going to bury it. You know, you might be digging in the field and uncover a grave you didn't know was there and touch a bone. You might touch a grave. These are things necessary or even unintentional. So there's all sorts of ways in which a person becomes unclean. Being in a place where someone dies makes you unclean. Touching someone that has touched something unclean makes you unclean and so on. And we say, okay, okay, okay. But what were the implications for the people of God? The implications were that they were cut off from all public worship. As long as they're unclean, they can't come back in. And so they have to go through this elaborate ritual and they have to wait seven days. And they have to jump through the hoops and follow the commands that God's given with the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer and so on and so forth, and only then on the seventh day at even are they enabled to have access once again into the public assembly. They had to be cleansed in order to be restored into fellowship and approach and worship before God, even in unintended and inescapable circumstances. And here the Lord's coming to us and he's saying, it's not like that. It's not with all the blood of bulls and goats. It's not the, the ashes of a heifer that has to sprinkle you in order to make you, 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 you the, the unclean, clean. No, we're being told, as we read elsewhere, that the Lord Jesus Christ has opened to his people. He has opened a fountain for sin and uncleanness. He's opened a fountain in himself. From him are found living waters. From him is found the the blood that is able to cleanse us from all of our sins. And to remove all the defilements. And to make us clean indeed. And to thereby be enabled to maintain perpetual unbroken worship and fellowship with him. There was no one meeting you at the door this morning. One of the deacons or someone. Making sure that you, were un, that you were clean before allowing you into the building. It's gone. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not these things, right? They have been replaced and surpassed. It says how much more, how much more in comparison shall the blood of Christ provide for us? Right here is something that is comprehensive. Here is something that is complete for all of the Lord's people. Because he offered himself to God. He was obedient unto death. He held nothing back. He gave all. He secured all. He atoned for every last sin of every last one of the elect people of God. And he offered himself without spot. Both his person and his life were without spot. They had no blemish in him. No defect could be found in him, inside or out, top to bottom, body and soul. He had fulfilled perfectly, flawlessly, comprehensively, all the demands of the law in his thoughts, in his attitudes, in his ambitions, in his words, in his deeds and actions. We have a record of for lawless obedience he's without spot so that when he goes to offer himself as the sacrifice in the place of his people and offer himself as the lamb of god for the sins of his people he's doing so as one who is a sacrifice without spot and we're told here that he did it through the eternal spirit through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to god you'll note If you're not reading too quickly, you'll have noted in verse 11 that it says, but Christ being come. Now, it could have said, but the Lord being come, but Jesus being come. It could have said a number of things. None of this is ever accident, right? This is the inspired record of the God of glory. No, it says, but Christ being come. Because Christ, Messiah, conveys to us the anointed one that's what it means, but the anointed one being come. right all of this is being tied together in verse 14 now, anointed how, where, when, what you know, because we've covered it, anointed with the Spirit. He is the one preeminently and, 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 and um, finally anointed quintessentially with the Holy Spirit. And we're told here that it is through the eternal spirit that he offered himself. And I wish we had time to unpack this. Sometimes we'll preach just a sermon on this verse. But the the relationship, as I alluded to last week, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the ministry, earthly ministry, of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's happening here? Within the singular, eternal being of God, there is one will, not three. Within the singular and eternal being of God, there is one will. And all the works of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit are always undivided. So that wherever God works, the whole Trinity works. And wherever the Son is at work, the Father and the Spirit are at work. And vice versa, there is a perfect cooperation. And Christ is enabled to offer himself through the ministry and aid of the Holy Spirit in doing so. There are depths there in all that's being alluded to and described, which we would do good to plummet for our own soul's sake. What's the effect? The effect is that the conscience is purged. Verse 14, the effect is purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. To purge the conscience. Remember verse 9? Those Old Testament ceremonies? That could not make him that did the service perfect. As pertaining to the conscience, now we have that which is able to purge the conscience. It reaches not just to the externals of physical and ceremonial uncleanness, it penetrates into the inner man, it goes right to the core, so that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is able to sink into the very depths and into the core of man's being, therefore covering everything inside and out. Guilt is removed, peace is secured, an approach with to God without dread. Much to the contrary, an approach to God with joy. Why the conscience? It could have said purged our souls, our hearts, our minds. It could have said a lot of things, all of which would have been true. But it says purged our consciences. I think, among other things, because the conscience is the seat of guilt. The guilt of sin. There's Pilate washing his hands. He's guilty. Wash him all day long, Pilate. Wash him all night long. Wash him all lifelong. None of your washing is going to be able to purge your guilty conscience for betraying the Son of God. You think of Shakespeare and Macbeth, and all oh, the blood of Arabia will not cleanse these my hands, right? The account given there, and others that we could mention. Nothing can purge. The guilt of sin in the conscience, but the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what he does. The guilt is removed. There is peace with God. There is the peace of God. And there is all the liberty that comes with that. To what end? Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. They're dead works because they're the works of a dead man. The unconverted only have dead works because they are dead men walking dead in their trespasses and sin. In other words, they're sinful works because they're from sinful men. That's all there is sinful men doing sinful works. But the Lord's coming to the believer and he's saying, no, 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 no. You're no longer dead in trespasses and sin. You've been quickened and made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has purged your conscience from all of those dead sinful works in your state of spiritual deadness. You've got to realize this, my, my unconverted friends. You can't serve God without a purged conscience. You can't do it. You think, oh, I'm going to do this, I'll do that, I'll try this, I'll pursue that, I'm going to jump through these hoops and, and follow these lines of thought or action or whatever else. You can't serve God acceptably. Without a purged conscience, all that outward action with your eyes and ears and hands and feet and everything else that you're pursuing, sweat pouring down you and all of your arduous labor to somehow do what it takes will never happen. You can't serve him unless your conscience is purged and your conscience isn't purged without the application of the blood of Jesus Christ without coming to him his way on his terms in the gospel, forsaking all of your dead works, including all the ones that you formerly esteemed as good, and chucking them on the rubbish pile, and lighting it on fire, and running as fast as you can away from it. Empty, bankrupt, coming to the Savior as a lone able, in all of his sufficiency to save you. To what end? To serving the living God. He's purged our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. This is no dead God. The so-called gods of this world, whatever the religion is, are all dead as doornails. Empty, lifeless, can't see, can't hear, because they have no being. They have no real existence. But we've come to the living and the true God. God. And we have been redeemed by the living and true God. And we are therefore able to serve the living God. And what's being depicted here is freedom. What's being depicted here is liberty. That we have been set free through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to do what is otherwise impossible. And we're cut loose. And the Lord says, you're you're at liberty. You can run in this. You can pursue it. You can give your whole heart and life and time and everything, your gifts and graces to it. You're able to do what you were never able to do in your bondage. You're free at last to serve the living God. You have the right to do so. And you have the liberty to do so. Well, this also presupposes the fact that the believer is not redeemed from bondage in order to become a couch potato. You weren't redeemed from bondage in order to become a couch potato. You were redeemed from bondage in order to give yourself as a living sacrifice, as we heard recently, and to serve the living God, withholding nothing, giving everything for his glory, to actually pursue his glory, to glorify him in his service. So that everything else you're doing is tied to this thing. And if it can't be or isn't tied to this thing, it needs to be snipped and tossed. Isn't this the language of the Bible? I mean, Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he's writing to the Colossians, and he's speaking to masters, slaves. He's saying, there you are in your workplace. Don't carry out that work with eye service. Men pleasing. He tells them explicitly, serve Christ in that capacity and place that the Lord's given you. Right? You're living for a far greater master than whoever your boss is, and you're living for a far greater reward than whatever your paycheck is. You're serving the living God. That's true in the family, it's true in the church, it's true in all other functions in life. Because of Christ's ministry, We are enabled to serve the living God for his glory. May the Lord add his blessing to our meditations upon these things. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, grant to us help to behold the glory of thy Son, the high priest of good things to come. Grant that we would be drawn to him By faith, to lay hold of him, to depend upon him. And, O Lord, that we would be set free to serve the living God with all that is within us. Gather glory to thyself to this end, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.